Hi, I'm glad to see that you're tuning in to the Northboro Church of Christ's YouTube channel. Today we're going to be continuing the sermon series from last week on the story of Joseph. Specifically, we're going to be taking information from Genesis chapter 42 and Genesis chapter 43. And if you remember from last week, we ended where Joseph had just become Prime Minister of Egypt. He had worked his way up from being a slave, then being thrown in jail, and even before that having been sold by his brothers, up to being the Prime Minister of Egypt. And he's told Pharaoh that there's a, there's a famine coming, and that Pharaoh needs to save up food for his people. So that's where we are at the start of Genesis chapter 42. So let's read the first five verses of Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. <clears throat> we'll read verses 1 through 5. Now Jacob saw that there was a grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place, so that we may live and not die. The ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming. For the famine was in the land of Canaan also. So it turns out that the famine is not only in the Egyptian area, it's also all the way up through the Crescent Valley into Canaan, where Joseph's family is. And so Joseph's father sends Joseph's brothers down to Egypt to try to buy grain. And Joseph recognizes them later on, but they don't recognize Joseph. So Joseph uses this to his advantage, and he puts them through a series of tests. He first asks if his father and his uh, actual brother, Benjamin, the rest of these men were his half-brothers, if they are still alive. And then he throws Simeon into prison. He accuses them all of being spies, and he throws Simeon into prison, and he tells them that they have to bring Benjamin back with him if they want to get Simeon back, and if they ever want to be able to buy food in Egypt again. So that gets us to Genesis chapter 43. So let's look at Genesis chapter 43 verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 43 verses 1 through 3. Now the famine was severe in the land, so it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us. The man would be uh, Joseph. You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly by telling the man whether, I, whether you still had another brother? But they said the man questioned us particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So he answered his questions. 
Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? So Israel, Joseph's father, does not want to send Benjamin because Benjamin is the only remaining child in his mind that he has from his favorite wife. And we could do a whole other sermon series on the family issues that were in this family. But suffice it to say, they finally convinced him to send Benjamin because otherwise they were all going to starve to death anyway. And so they and Benjamin went down, and when Joseph saw Benjamin, he was so emotional he had to leave the room. And he invited all of them, he released Simeon from prison, and he invited all of them to eat at his house. But he gave Benjamin the largest portion to see if the, his brothers were, were jealous of Benjamin like they had been jealous of him. And then that's where chapter 43 ends. So we're going to talk about a couple things out of those chapters. Uh, but I am going to give you just a quick look ahead at what happens in later chapters that will be covered in following sermons. Because after that, Joseph finally does reveal himself to his brothers after uh, a series of other tests that he puts them through. And... I just want, for the purposes of today, I'm not going to try to, I'm, I'm going to try not to step on anyone else's uh, material that's coming later on, but I do want to read Genesis chapter 45, verses 5 through 7, because that's going to be relevant for what we're talking about today. Genesis chapter 45, verses 5 through 7. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. This is Joseph talking to his brothers right after they found out that he's actually Joseph. Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there is still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to prepare for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. So Joseph, he says, this is all part of God's plan. God worked the fact that I was sold into slavery into his plan. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about God's providence. Now, providence is not a word we use a lot anymore. Uh, it was very common, especially like around the Revolutionary Era and up to the Civil War, it was an extremely common word. But we don't use it quite as much anymore, unless we're talking about Providence, Rhode Island, which is obviously a different thing. And when I say Providence, I don't mean like uh, many Calvinists believe that God has predetermined all of the actions that you are going to take, and that free will doesn't exist. What I mean by Providence is the fact that God works through men's free choices, and he fits those choices into his plan, and into his goals and his will for the future, and that he protects the people who serve him. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And as we'll see, there's many, many applications of that in Joseph's life. So first of all, God will provide. Providence is providing. 
And so God will provide for our physical needs if we seek him. Let's uh, turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. <clears throat> for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not worth much more than you? And let's uh, skip down skip down to verse 31. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So here Jesus is saying, don't worry about tomorrow. Now, we want to make sure that we are understanding what Jesus has said here. And he's saying, don't worry about tomorrow, specifically in regard to physical needs. The basic needs that each one of us has to eat, to have shelter, all of those things. And what I want to be clear on is that this doesn't mean that we shouldn't prepare for the future. If we go to Proverbs chapter 6, Proverbs chapter 6, and let's start in verse 6. Proverbs 6, 6. It says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways, and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer, and gathers her provisions in the harvest. So we need to be prepared in physical uh, means for the future. So what does he mean here? He obviously doesn't mean what some people do, and that is the attitude of, like, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, if we look at Luke chapter 17, verse 27, Luke chapter 17, verse 27, sorry, Luke chapter 17, verse 27. He says, They were eating and they were drink, drinking. They were marrying. They were be given, being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So, that's obviously not the attitude that we're supposed to have. That we can just continue on and not worry about the future. But what he does mean is that we shouldn't be concerned about the things that are out of our control. The world is a chaotic place. And if you really think about it, you should be probably deathly afraid for tomorrow. Anything could happen. You could die on your way home tonight. You could end up 
losing all of your savings because of inflation. There's millions and millions of things that could go wrong. You could lose your job. Many, many people have lost their jobs over the past couple months. Those kind of things are things that we should commit to God and not worry about them. And in fact, we shouldn't really worry about things at all. We should prepare for the future and trust God. And that's what he means here. And the important thing is that those needs are not distracting us from seeking God's kingdom. If we look at Psalms chapter 37, there's a verse here that I really like. Psalms chapter 37. Psalms chapter 37 verse 25. I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. If you truly are serving God, there will be times, possibly, that things are tight. But you really shouldn't worry that, oh, am I going to be able to make ends meet this month? God will take care of you. And that's not to say we should test God and we should, you know, not prepare and then pray and assume that something's going to show up at the door. But what we should do is that if we've done what we can, we shouldn't be worried about whether we're going to have enough money for this or whatever. We should be trusting in God. And I think that Joseph did that. I mean, he had to have been just devastated when he was sold into a completely foreign land, doesn't know anybody, probably didn't even speak the, the language there. And he would have had to just maintain his mental sanity to take one day at a time. The other interesting thing about Joseph is once he reached the top, he's one of the few people that we read about, even in the Bible, who is able to take that. You see, let's, uh, let's turn to Proverbs 23, verse 4. And I know that it sounds strange to say that he was one of the few people that can take being at the top, but you'll see what I mean here in a minute. So Proverbs 23, verse 4. Do not weary yourselves to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle and flies towards the heavens. So we have to be careful that we're not trusting in wealth. And on topics like this, it's so easy to instantly think, maybe not even consciously think, but subconsciously think, oh, I'm not wealthy. I don't have to worry about that. And we need to be very, very careful about self-justification 
under those terms. I'd like you just to take a minute to think. Think about what if something that like, for example, let's take Zimbabwe. I heard a podcast recently about it. Their inflation rate went to 200%. Everybody who had 401ks, retirement funds, savings, uh, anything other than hard assets like a house, completely lost it. What if that happened to you? Would you still be able to trust God through that circumstance? Think about all of the things you own. Are you using those as a, a safety wall, a safety net for your faith? Yeah, I'll trust God, but I also am going to trust in the fact that I have my emergency fund in my bank account. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have that, but you have to be careful that your attitude is right in regard to that kind of thing. And also, sometimes we like certain politicians in our country like to rail against the 1%. And some of us, maybe, it's, a, it's a, an enticing message, maybe. Because it seems like, wow, they have so much money, like, nobody needs that much money. But I want you to think about the fact that if you make a median income, average income, in the United States, you are in fact at the top 0.17% of the global income in the world. So, in reality, all of us are rich. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you bought something that was not really necessary, it was just for your own convenience? It was probably yesterday. And that's not, I'm not saying that's a, that's a bad thing. But what I am saying is that we need to be very, very careful that we're being good stewards of what God's given to us. And that's a whole other message that maybe we'll have at some other time. But it's just something to think about. We have to be careful that we're not like the church in Revelations. Let's turn there. Revelations chapter 3. Revelations chapter 3, verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold, refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, that you may clothe yourself, that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and eye salve, to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. So this church, this is a church that Jesus is talking to in the book of Revelation. This church had a very high opinion of themselves. Uh, they felt that they were religiously mature, that they had things figured out. But their problem was they were trusting in their riches instead of in God. And if we look in the Bible, even the most righteous people in the Bible, when they became wealthy, 
almost always they stumbled. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Joseph is one of the few examples of people who didn't stumble when they reached that top of the social hierarchy. I mean, Joseph, he was married to the high priest's wife. Uh, sorry, he was married to the high priest's daughter. He was second in command to Pharaoh. He could have had anything he wanted, basically. All of the management of funds that just were flowing into Egypt because of this grain storage program were under his control. But from all the evidence that we see, he still served God in that. And we look across many, many other characters. Solomon, when he became wealthy, turned away from God. Hezekiah, when he became wealthy, God blessed him, turned away from God for a while. He did come back, he repented, but it was a huge stumbling block for him. And the examples go on and on. So, as much as we've been blessed, all of us in this country need to be very careful that that doesn't become a stumbling block. Let's continue on to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Oops, sorry. <clears throat> First Timothy 6, and we'll read verses 17 through 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves treasures of good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So we should be using the treasures that we have on earth to store up treasures in heaven. Are you doing that with the treasures that you have? Think about the things that you're spending money on. Are those things that you could honestly go before God and say and give an account and say, this is what I did with your money? It's a sobering thought for all of us. And obviously, what that lends us to is being generous. We need to be generous people with our possessions specifically. With other things as well but specifically with our possessions. When was the last time that you gave above and beyond a tithe? Whether it be to the church, or your, if you maybe above and beyond your tithe contributed to a missionary or something. When was the last time you did that? And Joseph... He was a very generous person. Now you could say, well, it's not his money that he was being generous with. But I, I assume that he probably got uh, some kind of compensation for the work he did. And I doubt that he was just 
giving away Pharaoh's money. Um, and when I say he was generous, that's because when he gave his brothers back their sacks, we look at that. He put the money that they paid for the grain with in the top of their sacks. And then when his family came to Egypt, he let all of them uh, stay in the land of Goshen for free. Now you could say, well, they're his family. And yes, that's true, but many of those family members were people who sold him into slavery. So, he was generous with what he was given. And we need to be too. We obviously think uh, about many of the examples in the New Testament. And what's interesting is that oftentimes the people with the most money are the least generous. And the people with the least money are the most generous. We think about the parable, not the parable, it was a real event that happened, but the story of the widow and her might, her two mites, and how she came into the temple and gave her two copper coins, which was the minimum amount that you could give. And Jesus looked at her and said, she's given more than anyone else here because that's everything she had. And if we look at first, or sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 8, Paul seems to have a similar experience uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. In a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with urgings, for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And Paul here, he's talking about the churches in Macedonia. And it's interesting that he specifically mentions how generous these people were when they had so little in the way of worldly possessions. And I think that even with us, that's oftentimes true, is that we tend not to be as generous, especially when we are more blessed. And that is a pitfall that we need to be very, very careful of. But being generous doesn't just apply to worldly possessions. We need to be faithful in our actions as well. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So, not only does God provide for us our physical needs, and therefore we need to be generous with those, God also provides 
for our mental needs. Now, what do I say when I say, when I say mental needs? By mental needs, I'm specific, specifically talking about our intellectual needs. And so, let's go through a few of those. So, for example, your intellectual need to be a part of something bigger than yourself. We'll talk about that in a couple minutes. And the intellectual need you have to use the talents that God's given you. And there's a reason why we as people have a desire to contribute. That's because we are, work was not a part of the fall. Work is an ingrained part of human nature. Working to better the world around us. We need... And so let's let's talk about some of the things in regard to how God provides for our intellectual uh, well-being and how we need to act in regard to that. So first of all, we need to be faithful in the little things. We turn to Luke chapter 16, verse 10. Luke chapter 16, verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? So, we don't have specific examples of Joseph being faithful in the little things of life. But, he had to have been. As a young incoming slave who probably didn't even speak the language of the place where he was working, he had to be given probably menial tasks. And somehow, with God's blessing, he did those tasks so well that he worked his way up all the way eventually to the, the prime minister, uh, the office of prime minister. It reminds me of a story that we listened to as a kid. There was a set of CDs we had called, produced by a company called Your Story Hour. Highly recommend them if you ever need some audio uh, dramas to listen to. And they, they have really good Bible stories, actually. But the particular one I was thinking of is a couple of stories about Booker T. Washington. Uh, most of you should know who Booker T. Washington is, but he was... Uh, man who was born in slavery in the American South right before right right during the Civil War and then he was freed and he grew up as a free man and his eventual position was he became one of the foremost leaders of the black community right after the Civil War and he founded Tuskegee Institute, which is one of, uh, still exists, it's one of the historical black colleges in the United States. But he, as a young man, wanted to further his education, but he didn't really have any money. Uh, actually, he saved up money, and then his mother 
uh, his sister got sick and he had to use all of his money that he had saved up to help her. And so he set off basically without any money to try to get into the Hampton Institute, which was uh, one of the first schools established for people of color. And when he got there, they at first wouldn't admit him because he hadn't filed any admissions things or uh, anything like that, and he didn't have the money to pay for it. But, and he was so devastated, he went and sat outside. And at the end of the day, as they were closing, the headmaster, who he had tried to convince to let him come, said, that classroom needs to be swept. And so he went and he swept that classroom. He dusted everything. He cleaned the room until it was absolutely spotless. And he came back the next day, and the headmistress went with him into the room to inspect his cleaning job. And she took a white cloth, wiped the seals of the windows, checked inside the closets, and she said, with such a good job, she, I, I don't think we know exactly what she said, but she was impressed that he had been faithful in those little things. And she ended up letting him come to school there. And eventually he went on to be one of the most influential people probably in American history. So we need to be faithful in the little things and not grumble when we're assigned what we see as menial tasks. We should be doing them as hard as we can. That actually brings up another verse, uh, Colossians chapter 3 verse 23. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, do you work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. So, I don't think that when Joseph was working as a slave, he was probably very um, excited about his particular master. Maybe he was. I don't, I don't know. Maybe Potiphar was a really good master. But he worked as if he was working for God. And we see that in his conversation with Pharaoh's wife when she tried to seduce him. He said, how could I sin against God in this way of, of betraying my master? And we need to have the right attitude towards our work. We need to have the attitude that we're doing this for God, and we have so much to be grateful to God for. And we need to be careful that we're not grumbling about it. And in fact, each of us has been given talents that we need to be using for God, that we need to be generous with, like we were talking about earlier, but generous with our talents as well. If we turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 4. Romans chapter 12, verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And he goes on to explain that each person needs to use the gift that they've been given to benefit the kingdom of God. And we need 
to do that as well. We need to think about think about how you how you can contribute to God's kingdom. What are the talents you've been given? Maybe you're a five talent person, like we we hear the parable of the talents. How one man was given five, one man was given two, one man was given one. And each of them, each of the five and the two went out, they doubled their talents, of talent being a measurement of money. And the other man went out and buried his in the ground. So we don't want to be like that. We want to exercise the talents that God's given us. Maybe you're a two-talent person. Maybe you're a five-talent person. But whatever talents you have been given, there's a reason you have those talents. Use them to glorify God. And finally, we all have a need to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Joseph may not have known exactly everything. I think he had some inkling of it because obviously uh, it had been promised to Abraham and to Israel that the Messiah would come through them. And he had his dreams like we talked about last week. Vaughn talked about. But I don't know to what extent he knew that he was part of God's master plan to save all of humanity. But we do know that as Christians, we have the ability to be part of something that is so much larger than ourselves. We're part of a war. Philippians chapter 2 verse 2 says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, intent on one purpose. One purpose. And that purpose is to save people and bring them to Christ. And to win the battle against Satan. And people try to find fulfillment in so many things. They try to find it in their careers. They try to find it in politics. They try to find it in uh, challenges of physical prowess. Something that will leave a mark on the world, you know. We as Christians, we've been given that. And we, we need to be more grateful for it. But because we're in a battle, oftentimes we come under fire ourselves. And that's where God's final uh, area of providing for us is. And that's in our spiritual life. So God provides for us physically. He meets our needs that we have provides for us intellectually. He gives us a purpose, a hope, a calling. And lastly, he provides for us spiritually. Joseph was strong in resisting temptation. As a man, I, I can't imagine being in the situation that he was in with Potiphar's wife. Maybe she was really ugly. I don't know. But it would have been so easy for him to give in to that temptation. But God always provides as... Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, 
but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. So God is going to provide for us some way to overcome that temptation. And we do have to be careful that we're not bringing the temptation on ourselves by making provisions for the flesh, by uh, intentionally putting things or subconsciously doing things that will put us in compromising situations. And we have to make sure that we're praying so that we have the spiritual strength that we need to overcome that. But God will help us through those temptations. And he'll also help us through trials that aren't maybe necessarily temptations, but hardships that we have to go through as Christians. If we turn to James chapter 1, James chapter 1 verse 2, Pages are stuck. Alright, there we go. Sorry about that. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will produce endurance. So, we as Christians are going to undergo hardships. There will be things in our life, people make fun of us, or, you know, maybe it'll end up being something far worse than that. But God always provides us the strength we need to overcome those temptations, and thereby gain more endurance in our faith. And we're going to be talking about uh, faith this Sunday, in Sunday school, so whether you're watching this after or before... We're going to talk about how faith is a protection. Protection. So I won't go into that too much. But suffice it to say, God will protect us from those trials and help us through them. So we also have some things that God provided for us that Joseph didn't really have. You know, the first one is, we, we have the Holy Spirit with us. And we can have such joy in Christ. You know, today's culture is so obsessed with uh, a lot of nirvana and mindfulness techniques that sort of come out of Buddhism. And some people that are into those, it's kind of a harmless thing. But I think that we as Christians need to remember that we can have joy and peace that don't come from uh, making sure that we had enough alone time or something like that. They come from the fact that we are in Christ and we have that Holy Spirit. We look at Romans chapter 15 verse 13. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to be careful that we're not like Martha in the story of Mary and Martha. That we're worried and bothered about so many things that are happening in our life right now. We need to remember that in the grand scheme of things, what we do on an eternal scale is what's important. It's not what happens in all the things that we are so worried about oftentimes. And we need to make sure that we have that joy. It doesn't mean we're always going to be happy, but it does mean that we're always going to have that joy and peace that come from knowing that God is taking care of us. And finally, we can have, as Christians, peace for the future. Genesis chapter 22 is the story of Abraham and Isaac when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain. God tells Abraham that you have to kill your only son after sacrificing him. So Abraham, believing God, uh, goes to do it. And on the way up, I think the Holy Spirit moved Abraham to say this, but it's a prophecy. And he says, uh, Isaac asks, Father, where is the lamb that we're sacrificing? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide. And of course, as we know, God ends up stopping Abraham from killing Isaac. But that story is a pointer to the story of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the lamb that God has provided. And that's his ultimate act of providence. It is the fact that he provided his son so that we can have peace in our hope for the future. If we look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, First Timothy 6 verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience Sorry, in the wrong chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19. Storing up for themselves treasures of a good foundation. Well, I'll just quote it. I must have written down the reference wrong. But he says, In the future there is laid up for me a crown, of an unperishable crown of righteousness. And he's looking forward to the fact that because he's cleansed in Christ, he has a reward of eternal life waiting for him. And God has provided for us so abundantly in all of the areas of life that we need, in our physical life, in our uh, intellectual life, and in our spiritual life. And make sure that you are growing in your spiritual walk, that you have that peace that Christ has. And if you haven't received that peace, then we would be happy to talk to you about that. But seek Christ and his kingdom, and you will live. Thank you. Uh, I hope to see you at some point in the future.